Kadada Williams is an associate professor of history at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. In her research work, she has focused on African Americans' accounts of lynching and the night writings' impact on the inner lives of enslaved people. Williams, who received her PhD from the University of Michigan in 2005, has just published her latest book, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Dr. Williams stated her goal to transport readers into the daily existence of formerly enslaved people's hope-filled new lives. Professor Williams, where did you grow up? I grew up in West Michigan, uh, along Lake Michigan. What was your family like? So I came from, or I should say, I come from a history-loving family uh, on both sides. Both my mom and dad loved history. They studied it a lot. I am a, a grandchild of the Great Migrations North. My family started in southwestern Arkansas, migrated to Chicago, and then moved to West Michigan um, in the 1960s. What year did they migrate north? So they might, so my family, they migrated, um, there were several migrations in my family. So they come in the 1930s and 40s to Chicago, and then some go to California, but then they return, um, they return east and land in Chicago. What was it like growing up in your, t I, did, what town was it in Western Michigan? So it's Muskegon, Michigan, oh, so sure. a town of about 40,000. And what was it like in your life there? What was the, how, how diverse was the community? So it's very diverse. Uh, it's a lakeside community. We've got like a good size African-American population. Uh, we were the sort of racial minority, but there were a lot of us in the, there were a lot of us in the community. Um, very diverse, very welcoming, uh, very Midwestern, you know, in that respect. It was a great place to grow up. I love it. Can you remember when your parents, either one of them, started talking about history? I don't remember a specific moment. I just feel like uh, the, our house was infused with history, with posters, with art, with culture, with books, um, you know, with stories of the past. My mom was our family historian, so she was always digging for information about relatives. She was always collecting stories, keeping track of birth certificates and the like. So I had a really strong sense of who I was and who our people were um, and, you know, the expectation that I go and make them proud and that I do great things. Did she tell you anything about the history of family that involves slaves? So for, you know, when my mom was doing the history and when other families were doing, other family members were doing the history, they hit that roadblock. You know, at sort of like in terms of accessing records, um, you know, it becomes very hard to do before 1870. You know, because enslaved people are, you know, they're registered in terms of the census on the slave rolls. And so they're counted by number, but they're not named in the historical records. So we know for sure that we're descendants of enslaved people. Um, we don't know like that much about, or my mom, at least at the time, didn't know that much about the people who held us in bondage, um, who held our family in bondage. And my dad's side of the family, they, you know, come through Mississippi. So there's a similar roadblock at that point. You know, so there's a lot of history, a lot of rich knowledge up until like 1870, um, at least growing up in terms of the history that I knew from my family. Where did you go to undergrad? So I went to undergrad at Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant. So it's what, the center part of the state. What did you study? I was a history and political science major. Um, so I double majored in history and poli sci, much to my mother's uh, disappointment. She wanted me to major in English. Um, but I said, you know, I loved history and um, I committed myself to studying it and just sort of went on from there. I did my master's at Central in history, continuing to sort of like build upon the knowledge I gained as an undergraduate. What was your PhD at the University of Michigan about? So my PhD uh, at the University of Michigan was on African-American survivors of lynching, or I should say uh, lynching victims' relatives, their efforts to get justice for um, their lynch kin. 
So I use like a lot of records. I've been interested in studying um, racist violence for a long time. Um, as an undergraduate, I learned about this truly horrific lynching of a pregnant um, Black woman named Mary Turner. And as I learned about that in my uh, undergraduate African-American history survey, I just wondered what happened to her family, how they continued to live in a world um, where something like that happened, how they made sense of what happened, how they moved forward. And that began my journey trying to sort of understand what happens to survivors of this violence. So my dissertation was based on um, a question that I had um, as an undergraduate, as a sophomore in college. What is the story about Mary Turner? So the story about Mary Turner is that she is um, a black woman in Georgia. And in her community, the black men, including her husband, are protesting injustice, um, particularly economic violence. And so the, the men engage in like a protest and... There are a number of them killed. And for Mary, she's she sort of, you know, makes a public declaration that she insists on uh, getting justice for her husband. And the perpetrators heard her cry and they decided to punish her. And so they lynch her. Um, and this, you know, the details of her killing are really graphic. She's, you know, hanged upside down. Um, her fetus is cut out of her. And when it falls to the ground, it's stomped by a member of the mob. Um, and her family has to live, all of those families have to live with what happened afterwards. And since then, um, their family, her descendants, um, have tried to make sure that we, you know, play that we know who they are, that we honor their story about what happened to her. What happens to you when you write these kind of stories? What happens to your own anger? I mean, I think part of it is that as a historian, you get really desensitized, you know, like, like you know, history is hard uh, and often very violent and very graphic. And so for me, I also, you know, believe that you to study this history, you have to have a kind of ethic. And so part of that ethic means that you have to carve out space to sit with the stories, uh, to under to sit with the historical records, to understand um, what they communicate, what survivors in particular wanted known about what happened to them, what they wanted lawmakers to do, um, how they tried to keep the stories of what happened to their family members alive. So you have to take a moment for that. And you have to make sure that you are focused on the historical records and interpreting what they say. And you can't allow your own issues, your own drama, your own judgments, your own personal feelings, your own anger to get in the way of that. So you have to focus on the interpretation and then you have to take a moment for yourself. Um, and I did take and do take a lot of those moments for myself. Um, but and those moments for myself are important for me being able to come back to do justice to the survivors and their stories about what happened to them and their people. When you're talking about this period in history in your classroom, what's the first reaction you get from your students? I think for my students, there was a, there's a sense that they knew it was bad, but they didn't know it was this bad. So there is a kind of shock, you know, that... You know, they knew they knew that lynchings occurred. They didn't know, you know, when they, you know, hear a story like Mary Turner's, they didn't know how devastating they were, just how awful they were. Um, and that becomes like a reckoning for a lot of them. Many of them are frustrated because they feel like they've gotten this uh, cookie cutter history um, and the sort of darker, harder history helps them understand the world we live in now much better. Um, but many times they have to sort of take a moment for themselves. And we, you know, we discuss that. Take a moment, experience the pain, the frustration, the shock, the anger about what you've encountered in the historical record. And then let's come around to sort of make sense of what this tells us about the moment, what this tells us about the people who are trying to get justice and, and, and what this tells us about their allies and the nation at the time. The subtitle of your book is A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. What is Reconstruction? 
So reconstruction is the larger process by which the United States tries to come to terms with what happened in the Civil War, how they try to reunite and move forward beyond the war. And so part of reconstruction involves returning the seceded states back to the Union fold. The other part of reconstruction involves trying to figure out what's going to happen to newly freed African Americans. The um, the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, they said that Black people should be released from bondage, but it didn't say neither, you know, of those, uh, neither the Emancipation Proclamation nor the 13th Amendment said what would follow, you know, what would follow, whether or not Black people would have equal rights and what those rights would look like, whether or not Black people, particularly Black men, would have access to the vote. Reconstruction is the process by which they figure that out. And it actually has three parts, wartime reconstruction, which occurs uh, under Abraham Lincoln, presidential reconstruction, which occurs under President Andrew Johnson, and congressional reconstruction, which follows uh, Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Go back to the period right at the end of the Civil War in April of 1865. How many people were there in the United States? So. Honestly, I don't know how many people there were in the United States. I know how many black people there were. There were about 4.5 million African-Americans in the United States at the time. Uh, the vast majority of them had been held in bondage. About 500,000 of them were free. I read that there were in the South alone and in the, <clears throat> excuse me, slave states, about 12 million people. And do you have any idea how many people in the South under the 12 million had or owned slaves in some way or another? So of that larger population, I don't know how many of them held uh, people in bondage. What I know is that they are not necessarily the sort of numerical majority. So there are people, you've got the planters who hold a lot of people in bondage. You've got large numbers of people who hold, you know, fewer than five people in bondage. You've got the non-enslavers who often rent slaves. So even though you don't, I think we have to sort of be careful of sort of um, when we think about the people who don't legally hold people in bondage, we have to sort of make sure we understand whether or not they rented uh, slave labor uh, in order to get the work that they needed done. And that's important because you've got a lot of people in the region who are economically invested in slavery. And even those who did not necessarily hold people in bondage, some of it's because they hadn't gotten their money together yet. So they have slaveholding in mind as part of their vision for their future. They just haven't managed to accomplish it yet because it's not it's not very easy to do. Uh, this is one of those hypothetical questions. But one of my colleagues, I asked, do you have a question for our guest today? And he said, yeah, I do. Um, what would have happened if Abraham Lincoln had lived through his four year term? What is your sense of what he would have done differently than Andrew Johnson and U.S. Grant and then Rutherford B. Hayes? Right. Well, I'll sort of start that by saying, you know, historians, we don't like counterfactuals because we know what happened, right? Yes. The historic, you know, you know, we're, we're an evidence-based discipline, so we know what the records say happened. Um, I don't know for sure. You know, my guess is that we wouldn't have had radical reconstruction so we wouldn't have had congressional reconstruction. I don't know that we would have had the 14th Amendment or the 15th Amendment if Abraham Lincoln had lived. Well, and that's because, you know, he's, you know, he's very committed to a very easy reentry for the seceded states back into the Union fold because he wants to sort of move forward really quickly. What what did Andrew Johnson do that that you suspected that Abraham Lincoln wouldn't have? Actually, I think they're about, you know, I think they have like a similar attitude in terms of moving forward very quickly. So it has less to do with it has less to do with Andrew Johnson, uh, except for his like steadfast opposition to um, his steadfast opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, his refusal to do anything about the black codes. Uh, what you have is, you know, members that you what you have are these members of Congress who are determined to completely reconstruct the South in a way that neither Abraham Lincoln nor Andrew Johnson were committed to doing. And so it is that contention. It is that group of people um, aided by and supported by af newly freed uh, African-Americans, they played a significant role in what will become what Eric Foner calls the second founding. 
the Thirteenth Amendment that you mentioned was ratified on December the sixth, eighteen sixty-five. The Fourteenth Amendment, July ninth, eighteen sixty-eight, and the Fifteenth Amendment, February third, eighteen seventy. So we have a five-year period there. What significance thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen had on the on the United States at that time? Well, the 13th Amendment is what's actually needed to completely abolish slavery. So it's it's very significant. Um, we've got the Emancipation Proclamation, but many enslavers didn't recognize Lincoln's authority. So it's not like they released the people they were holding in bondage. The 13th Amendment declares that chattel slavery is completely over, um, that it has been abolished except for people who've been convicted of crimes. So it is completely transformative for the entire country, economically, politically, socially, culturally. So it's very significant. The 14th Amendment, what it does is it fortifies the right to have rights in the United States for all citizens uh, in a way that the original Constitution did not, particularly when it comes to Black people. Um, and so it is also truly transformative. You see the expansion of American freedom and democracy uh, to more people during this time period than you had in the period before. And so with the 15th Amendment, what it says is that you can't use race in order to deny someone the right to vote. And so that is also truly transformative because it expands American democracy. It brings more people into the body politic. It brings more people into the position to have a say in the country and how it moves forward beyond the Civil War. Give us an example. Going back to December 6, 1865, they passed the 13th Amendment, it abolishes slavery. What would, if you were a slave or enslaved in the South, what would life have been like immediately for you? It depends on where you were. Uh, and it depends on whether or not the person uh, who had held you in bondage uh, respected the law and released you. Uh, if they respected the law and released you, then, you know, what you would do is you immediately went to go find your loved ones, particularly those who had been sold away from you. You're also looking for work. Um, because you know your labor has been stolen for all your life. You know you're going to have to work to support yourself. So you look for work um, with someone who's going to respect your new freedom, uh, who's going to pay you, et cetera, who's going to do these things. You look for housing. You try to protect your relatives by getting married, by doing all of these things. Um, and you're pressing for, you know, the protection of your rights. And you need to press for the protection of your rights because... There are many people in the communities in which you know you live who are committed to um, making sure that emancipation only means that black people are released from bondage, not necessarily that they have access to any rights. Two, and so what black people are doing is fighting to make sure they have access to those rights. Okay, two words that you use together many times in your book, and I ask this of you because I am one, white men. Why do you use those two terms, those two words, white men together so often? And was that done on purpose? So I use white men. So this is a book on African-Americans who were targeted and who were killed, who were raped, who were slaughtered, who were tortured. And the people who are doing that are white men. Uh, they're white Southern men. Um, and. I don't know any other label to use to describe, you know, white men who are participating in this violence. Some of them are participating uh, in Klan violence, but they are white, you know, they are Southerners, um, but they're white Southerners. And I use the white because there's a tendency to erase black and native people from Southern history um, by simply using Southerners. So I use the racial adjective because I believe it matters for understanding what happened and why. Well, I asked the question because Women are never mentioned, and I wondered if any of the women ever got involved in any of the torturing that went on. So for the most part, in terms of Ku Klux Klan raids, women aren't necessarily involved. White women aren't necessarily involved. Uh, white, men, white women are involved in the day-to-day -day violence that newly freed Black people are experiencing. Um, and sometimes they are directing Klan raids at Black people. But for the most part, the deliberate targeting and the holding hostage, et cetera, that we see with night rides, you do not see many white women involved in this. Sometimes they're there in the crowd, but they're not often actively involved in the physical part of the attacks on Black people. How many white men in the South 
after the Civil War, do you think were involved in these raids, these night rides? And I want you to describe what a night ride is, what a night raid is. So a night ride um, or a nighttime raid are these campaigns, these terror campaigns that white Southern men engage in. Um, they are targeting not only, you know, black people who are voting, but they're also targeting white progressive men, uh, white men who have been loyal to the United States. I don't focus on them because I study African-American history. And this is a story about black people um, being targeted in this violence. Um, and so what they do is they stage these raids, these nighttime raids where they hold families hostage for hours at a time. So that's what a night right. So that's what a night ride is, or a nighttime raid is. Um, they are often, as I said, torturing people. They are trying to discourage them from voting. Um, they are trying to pu punish them to drive them off their land to steal their cash which black people have cash because they're being paid for their labor um, and because they're working harder for themselves than they did for the people who held them in bondage. Um, and so this is part of a larger war on black people's freedom. And the nighttime raids are just one part of it. So it, what was the other it, part of your question? How many do you how many of the white men in the South do you think the total of Ku Klux Klaners or, you know, people that were doing the damage? How many? So were there? I think. So, I, so in terms of raw numbers, I don't know how many, you know, a precise number of how many there were. Uh, what we do know is that there are thousands of people killed. So it's got to be. So it's not just a rump faction of them. Um, and they could not get away with what they're doing if there wasn't a larger percentage of the white population that was happy to turn their head and not do anything about it. And I'm uh, and, I, and I think that's important to acknowledge, because if anyone was any if anyone was in any position in the white South in order to stop this violence, it would have been the white planters. It would have been the white lawmakers. It would have been white juries. But they did not do that. So, you know, if there's a sort of quest to sort of find the good white people, I'm sure that they're there in the region, but there weren't enough of them to stop this violence from occurring or to make sure that actual perpetrators were brought, were brought to justice after the fact. You quote a figure of 53,000 people, black people were killed. And do you, do you trust that figure or is it more than that? So as I say in the as I say in the book, we get that figure from Robert Smalls, um, Robert Smalls, who escaped from the man who held him in bondage and turned over, um, turned over the ship called the Planter to U.S. forces um, and goes to serve in the U.S. Congress. We get that figure from him in 18, in the 1890s. And we don't know for sure how he's collecting the information. My guess is that he is combing through or he has had someone comb through um, the Klan hearings. They comb through the Freedmen's Bureau records from when the Bureau was still open. Uh, the violence is so bad that there's a section in the Freedmen's Bureau records called murders, riots, and outrages, which include a lot of reports from U.S. Marshals who are stationed across the South, um, reports of lynching in newspapers or these killings in newspapers, as well as the annual colored men's conventions. So you've got the colored conventions where people are gathering on a regular basis and they are filing petitions, they're sending memorials, etc. And these are full of information about the number of black people who've been killed in their communities. So we don't know for sure how he came up with the number, but based upon the violence that we do have documented, the figure is plausible. In your book, you have a map and you show concentrations, what you write about in the book, from these states, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama and Mississippi. Those are the big ones. A little bit from North Carolina, a little bit from Florida. Where in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia and South Carolina did you find the biggest tragedies? So I should say that the map reflects the places where the hearings were conducted, the congressional hearings were conducted. Uh, so the congressional hearings, excuse me, congressional hearings weren't conducted across the entire South. They were conducted in those states. Um, and so I would say in South Carolina, York County, um, Spartanburg County are the big places where you've got a lot of people who are targeted. In Georgia, it's places like White County, in Georgia, Florida, it's Jackson County, Florida, is one of the places where you see a lot of violence. Um, in 
Mississippi, its communities around Macon and Columbia. Um, yeah, Columbia, Columbus, uh, Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, so it's in those communities. It's in those areas around uh, those communities where at least we have the reporting for people who testify before Congress. In chapter two, you start off by saying the thunder of hooves broke the silence of the night, jarring Caroline Benson awake in White County, Georgia, and alerting her that white men were coming and that she and her family were in imminent danger. Tell us the rest. Caroline so, Benson. So Caroline Benson is, you know, she is in White County, Georgia. And what's happening to her family is that her daughter, Mary Brown, had been implicated in reporting to authorities about the violence that was being unleashed in their community about other nighttime attacks. And the men are coming to target Mary. Um, but the rest of the family is there with her when they come and they are they experience a night raid and Mary is whipped and tortured and choked to the point of passing out. Um, she and all of their family members survived the attack. Caroline experienced physical violence herself. Even the young children who are in the household um, are messed with, as they say. Um, there's a bit of sexual, um, maybe abuse that's happening by the perpetrators on the young on the young children who are in the household at the time, and that's documented in the hearings. So they all managed to live through the attack, but Mary sustained significant injuries from what happened to her. Um, they flee their community for a period of time, and then for a period, uh, U.S. forces, uh, military forces come into the community, and they're able to return home. And shortly after that, Mary and Joe and Caroline all testify before Congress. And those hearings were for what? So those hearings were to investigate um, the violence that the sort of a lot of the election violence that was being reported to members of Congress um, from 1868 coming forward. So this violence is not something that's hap that's secret. Everyone know everyone knows about it or everyone who wants to know about it knows that it's happening. Members of Congress are receiving reports. The White House is receiving reports, including from the U.S. military about the violence that's happening in their communities. So Congress convenes a hearing to investigate what actually happened to get a sense of what's happening in the region. Um, and they want to do that because you've got the uh, white men who are engaged in the violence or who may be benefiting from the violence saying, oh, there's nothing happening here. You can't believe these people. There's nothing going on here. Chapter three, you start off by saying night riding strikes are often envisioned as attacks on individuals, mostly men, voters like Edward Crosby, politicians running for uh, serving in office or landholders like Samuel Tutson. Explain that. Those two names come up more than once. Yes. So Edward Crosby is a man who lives in Aberdeen, who lives just outside of Aberdeen, Mississippi. And he is preparing to vote. But the man who held him in bondage, who's now his employer and landlord, threatens him. He says, you know, I'll kill you if you try to if you try to vote. But in order to get off from under the yoke of this white man, what Edward Crosby knows is that he has to go and vote. So he goes to vote. Um, and when he goes to vote, he's denied a ballot. You know, they tell him there are no more ballots available. So he goes to another polling place and he's told the same thing. And other black men join him and they are also denied um, the right to vote. And so Edward Crosby goes home and he doesn't think, you know, anything of it. He hopes that his former uh, enslaver won't make good on this threat. But one night he steps out to get some water for his thirsty child and he sees the Klan um, bearing down on them, uh, bearing down on his family. Um, you know, they're on their horses. Their horses are draped in full body cloth coverings, etc. And Edward runs and hides in a smokehouse. When the men get to when the men finally arrive at his house, um, they ask his wife where he is. She says she doesn't know. And they eventually leave and Edward survives and no one in his family is harmed. But he lives in fear of being targeted again, because it's rare that when they get those threats that people, they just automatically give up because they don't find them. So he testifies before Congress because he's hoping to get justice and he's hoping to live in peace. So that's Edward Crosby. Um, Samuel Tutson, he and his uh, wife, Hannah, 
They survived slavery. They managed to get a 160-acre tract of land. Um, They're working, so they can pay for land or they can be in the process of paying for it. And as soon as they move on it, um, their white neighbors start to try to take the land from them, try to drive drive them off of it. And they refuse to go. And so because they refuse to go, they experience a raid, one of these nighttime raids. And there's a white deputy sheriff who is in the raiding party with them. They storm into their home. They drag Hannah and uh, Samuel out of the house. And so this is um, uh, near Waldo, uh, Florida, where this is happening. Uh, They drag them to different areas of um, their homestead. Samuel is tied to a tree and he's viciously whipped. Hannah is tied to a tree and she's sexually assaulted by the deputy sheriff. Um, They both manage to get free. And, you know, when the men eventually leave and they report it to authorities immediately. And what authorities tell them is that, well, this is your this is your property. You have the right to be here. You should stay here and defend yourself. And that sounds good in theory. It sounds good in theory. But it wasn't just one white neighbor. It was an organized group and it included a member of law enforcement. How were they going to be able to stay in their home and live in peace? So that would be very difficult for them to do. But what they are doing is continuing to report to authorities um, so that they can find anyone who might take action to stop them from being targeted again, to sort of make their white neighbors recognize their right to this property and their right to live in peace. In your research, you talked about your dad coming from Mississippi, your mother from Arkansas. In your research, did you ever find any of your family that was tortured? To my knowledge, I have not found documentation of members of my family um, enduring this kind of violence. In chapter four, you start off by saying, if you want to kill me, kill me. Adeline Fuller Love told the extremists surrounding her home. Night Riders ambushed the family in Choctaw County, Alabama on April, an April night in 1871. So reconstruction goes from 1865 up to when? How many years beyond 71? So it depends on who you talk to. Historians today track the end of reconstruction to the 1890s. Um, They track it until Jim Crow is installed in many of the former enslaving states. And so Reconstruction, the sort of the process by which you see the passage of new legislation, the Civil Rights Act and the Reconstruction Amendments, that process is still going on during this time period. Um, But it starts to, you know, it's stalling by 1870, by 1871, Um, even though we we've been told that Reconstruction ends uh, in 1877 when the last of the troops are removed. A lot of the sort of uh, progressive legislation that was enacted had already stopped uh, by that time period. Go back to Adeline Fuller Love. Who was she? So Adeline Fuller Love uh, is married to Robert Fuller Love. Uh, They live in Choctaw County. They are landowners. Um, Census assessors and tax assessors um, indicate, you know, they document them having $500 worth of property. So they're prosperous landowners. They are newly freed, um, but they have worked and worked hard. And what happens is that one night Robert is away conducting business and white men stage a raid on their home. And they are essentially they surround the home and they set the house on fire while the family is inside forcing them to face the prospect of the fire or the the armed men outside. And so desperate to save her children from dying in a fire, um, Adeline sort of steps outside and puts herself at risk for being shot to try to put out the fire to save her family. What happened? And so, so, so she successfully, so they do not fire on her. Eventually, one of their neighbors calls out and says, is everything okay over there? Can we offer any help? And that scares the white men away. And so her husband reports what what happened to the family and what they try to do is to get justice to make sure that it doesn't happen again. They need to rebuild their home, but before they can really fully rebuild, they need to know that they're safe and they can't be safe while this violence is still occurring in their community. 
So they reported to local authorities and then Robert eventually testifies before Congress about what happened and what was still happening to them. Because in Robert's case, he is threatened on his way to testify at the hearings. And so when he testifies, he doesn't know whether or not his family has been killed or not. And we don't know either. Jim Crow laws, what were they? So Jim Crow laws are the segregation laws that we see emerge after white Southerners effectively disfranchise black men in the South. So the Jim Crow laws, um, they start in areas of public transportation um, in cities, what they call cities of the first class. So these are large cities that can provide first class accommodations. Um, segregation doesn't really make sense under slavery, right? Uh, you know, you need black people living in the same space with you if they're going to be taking care of your every need. Right. Uh, and so after slavery is abolished, you've got a class of black people who are working, who are thriving. They have means. They want to participate. They want to go to the theater. They want first class accommodations in restaurants and in, in, in hotels and on trains, etc. And what you have is the white population that is determined to make sure that they don't enjoy that, that they don't have dignity in public places. So they are denied access to um, these, these places, even though they have the financial means to um, access them. And so what we see is the new a passage of a new series of ordinances that legally segregate black people, that legally deny black people access to public places or to first class seating on trains. And eventually you'll have the Supreme Court that will codify uh, this with the uh, Plessy v. Ferguson ruling. And so after Plessy v. Ferguson, what's curious is that the white South, they implement only one part of the ruling. The ruling says that you can segregate that you can segregate as long as the facilities are equal. And what we see is that white Southerners, um, segregationists, they focus only on segregation. They do not make sure that the facilities are equal. And so what we see is African-Americans fighting segregation. And I think we should be clear, African-Americans are not fighting to be in the physical presence of white people. They don't think that white people are somehow magical. They're fighting for the equality mandate of Plessy to be honored and respected by Southern states. Go back to what we talked about earlier. Along comes the end of the Civil War and the 13th Amendment, and you're you're enslaved. Did you just walk off the plantation? So if the person holding you in bondage wasn't denying your right to go, you could. How could that you know? person, though, hold your right to go? So what they could do is they could physically restrict you. They could use the same kind of slave patrol system and their overseers, et cetera, to stop you from leaving. And they could use members of their family to deny you the right to physically leave a farmer plantation. And that's happening a lot. You know, we've been told these stories, these convenient narratives that enslavers just let people go. And some did, but a lot of them didn't. You know, they forced black people to run the gauntlet to leave. Um, and, you know, sometimes adults may be allowed to leave, but they're holding on to their children because they want to continue holding them in bondage. They want to continue stealing their lives and their labor. And our laws don't enforce themselves. Right. So if white Southerners aren't enforcing the law, if, enslave, if the enslaving class isn't enforcing the law, who's going to hold them accountable? And so that becomes part of the issue with Reconstruction. They are not enforcing, they are not respecting the law. And so you will often need federal troops in order to make sure that the laws are, that, that the laws are actually being respected. And so, you know, some people, they can walk right off a farmer plantation. Others are denied the right to leave and certainly the right to leave with their children. We see black Civil War veterans who are killed in the process of helping their families leave farms and plantations where they're, being, where they're still being held against the law. Were enslaved people allowed to marry? So define allow. So there are people who establish marriages, but their marriages don't have the same right of legal protection as the free population enjoys. So their law, you know, so, you know, they can marry, but an enslaver can separate the husband from the wife. An enslaver can still take the children in a way that they can't legally take free children away from their parents. 
So people, they do form their own, um, they do form their own unions, which they recognize, but they know that they're, that they know that their marriages, that their unions don't have legal protections that everyone else in the society enjoys. And that will be one of the things that they will fight for. Um, it's one of the many rights that they fight for after slavery is abolished. Could the children go to school? So their children could go to school if there's a school organized uh, in their community. There were many schools that are organized in communities. And if uh, the former enslaving class didn't destroy those schools um, because they didn't believe that black people should have access to education. How many black people in the South were free and could own property? So free black people in the South before the Civil War or during the Civil War, I mean, what was the what were the restrictions? I mean, so free black people, they can they can they can generally, depending on where they are, they can own property unless there's a local law denying them access to property. So you do have black people in places like South Carolina who free black people who have land. Um, you know, they have land They are They have the right to acquire land where they are. Um, they have their own businesses in these southern communities. They are working. They have the means to do it. It's enslaved people who are denied these rights and protections. In some northern and and some northern states in particular, you do see efforts to try to restrict black people's property rights. Um, but those laws aren't always enforced. So you do still see black property owners in northern uh, states and midwestern states too. As you know, in the southern states today, the Mississippi's and the Alabamas and the Georgias and the South Carolinas, there's. 30 some percent in a lot of these states that are black. Why did they and their families stay there after what they went through during that period? So a lot of people stay because they love their states. Because they're, you know, because their families are there, because they're dead or buried there. They don't want to leave, you know, any more than certain, you know, white people want to leave their home states and their home communities. They have an affinity for the region, but they believe that they should have the right to be free, equal and secure there. And so the people who leave are the people who decide that their best interests are to be free, equal and secure somewhere else. And they have the means to leave. Other people, they don't have the means to leave or they believe that there's dignity in staying and fighting for your rights where you are. How much did you ever learn from your mother or father about their family's reasons for moving north? So what I learned is that, you know, a lot of my family members, they were seeking opportunity. Some were escaping like Jim Crow violence. You know, Jim Crow isn't just the law. It's something that's enforced on a regular basis, not only by official law enforcement, but white people. And so you do still see people, uh, white people who are targeting black people who are resisting Jim Crow. And so in my family, you've got a mix of people who may have been trying to escape uh, white violence and people who are looking for opportunities in cities like uh, metro in cities like Chicago or in the larger metropolitan area. How much of your family moved north? So not all of the family moved north. Um, the matriarch, um, my great grandmother, she remained in Arkansas um, and her daughters uh, sort of toggled and her daughters and sons toggled back and forth. Um, they had land uh, at one point, And so there was, you know, land to be tended to. So I would say, you know, at different points in time, there's like 50 percent, you know, 30 to 50 percent of the family that's migrated north. They haven't like, you know, left. Um, they haven't left their southern roots completely. And my family, even when I was a kid, we still spent most of our summers uh, in the south in Arkansas with my mom's family in particular. In Chapter five, you start off by saying, <clears throat> excuse me, as night Riders beat Andrew Carth, right? Carth, Cart, Cathcart, excuse me. He pleaded for deliverance, quote, Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, have mercy on my soul. He later said, I expected that to be my last word. Who was Cathcart? So Andrew Cathcart is one of those, interestingly enough, he's one of those black men who um, acquired his freedom before the Civil War. He purchased his freedom. He purchased the freedom of his wife and several of his children before the Civil War. He gets property. He calls it his little plantation. And he is targeted uh, with this violence. And he lives through it, but he's, he's significantly injured in the attack. Um, and 
what he is living with is the sort of trauma of having been attacked and living in fear of being attacked again. He still, he wants to hold on to his land. He wants to hold on to his property. He wants to stay in South Carolina um, where his people are, where his people have been. Um, but he is targeted and he doesn't know whether or not uh, it's safe for him to be at home. Andrew Carthcart. Andrew Cathcart, excuse me, is also a senior. I believe that when he's test that when he testifies, he is in his seventies. So he's an older black man, but he has managed to accomplish great things in buying his way out of uh, slavery, in buying his wife's freedom, in doing that for several of his children, and acquiring land. So he has achieved everything you know he could possibly dream of, and then he's targeted by people who don't believe that black people should have these rights, and they should, and that, and certainly that they shouldn't achieve um, the success that someone like Andrew Cathcart and his family um, managed to achieve after slavery. Give us a, a scenario: Were these homes that these black black folks were living in were they out in the country? And when the night riders came in, how many would come at one time? How often were houses burned down? How often were women raped? How often were people killed on the scene? So people are generally living, um, they're living outside of the towns, um, outside of the Southern towns. They're living in these little hamlets or little villages. Sometimes the little villages are so small um, and you know their history is so short, they don't even make it onto maps. Um, but we know that they exist. So they're t attacking outside of these areas where there are U.S. troops, where there is the state that might get involved. Um, and so people are often isolated on these farms or in these farming communities or in these little homesteads. In the attacks, you have a lot of people who are killed or they're sexually assaulted. Everyone's home isn't burned, but a lot of homes are burned. Um, and even if the home isn't burned, you know, the people, um, what we also see is that a lot of the homes are shot up, you know, so they are, you know, riddled with bullets on a regular basis. Sometimes, you know, people, they are in their beds when the shooting starts and they, they miss a bullet by an inch, you know, coming in through the bedboard, you know, coming, excuse me, through the headboard of their bed um, from the wall. And, you know, it's very, um, the violence is very harrowing uh, to a lot of the people who experience it. What the records also indicate is that some people um, are scared to death by what happened to them. They die as a result of the sort of fear that they endure during an attack. Sometimes people are physically injured. Sometimes, um, you know, you get a sense that their um, their adrenaline has spiked and it is spiked in a critical organ and it shuts down and their survivor and surviving relatives attribute their death um, to the attack. They weren't killed in the attack, but they believe that they died as a result of their fear in the attack. What were black codes? So the black codes were the laws that um, the former Confederate states enacted uh, after emancipation. In a number of cases, like Mississippi, for example, all they do is take their old slave code, the codes that or the laws that regulated black people's lives, enslaved people's lives from cradle to grave. Um, sometimes they just take those uh, old slave codes and they switch out the language. They sort of replace the word slave with black or Negro or colored or something like that. So these laws, they really go about restricting Black people's freedom and Black people's right to have rights. So they restrict their movement. They restrict the kind of employment they can have access to. They restrict their right to bear arms. Um, they, in some instances, they will insist that children, Black children, be um, allowed to be apprentices uh, you know, to white, uh, to the white planter, to white people in the community. And all of these rights are about denying black people their rights, uh, denying black people's freedoms. So where did you get all this stuff, all this history stuff? How'd you find it? So the records have been available uh, and historians are like professional historians are really aware of the Ku Klux Klan hearing. So these are the records that are produced when members of Congress decide to investigate this violence that's happening in the South. They travel to places like Jacksonville, to uh, Macon, to uh, Spartanburg, et cetera. They travel to these communities and they collect testimonies. They want to see what's happening in what they call the late insurrectionary states. And so they hear from lawmakers, law enforcement, accused perpetrators and their victims. 
So they collect these testimonies and the testimonies um, were gathered into 13 volumes. And so those volumes are available on the states where they went and conducted on uh, these hearings. So anyone can take access, anyone can access them. They're available online. Those are some of the records that I looked at, newspaper reports, um, the Freedmen's Bureau records. Um, they have a section in them called murders, riots, and outrages. And those are full of information, affidavits from survivors of violence, reports from Freedmen's Bureau agents, what they are them, what they themselves are witnessing, and what they're reporting to federal officials about what's happening in the communities where they're stationed. I also look at some of the records in terms of um, interviews that formerly um, that the last generation or the last witnesses to slavery gave to WPA interviewers in the 1930s. Yeah, I wanted you to explain that the WPA, the Works Project Administration, back during the right after the uh, uh, the market fell and the, the depression came along. What what was it, and how did how did were they able to find people to interview, and who did the interviewing? So the Works Progress Administration, they decide that they want to collect information from Americans who experienced life in the in the late 19th century. And so they conduct a series of interviews with all Americans, different groups of Americans. But they are specifically interested in hearing from the last witnesses to slavery. These people are alive and living in communities so people would know who they are. They would know their stories. They would know their history. Many people, they've got deep roots in the communities where they live. Some of them are organized and telling their stories. Um, they're participating in Emancipation Day activities. Those are African-American celebrations of emancipation. So they're doing this on a regular basis. They're well known. The interviewers are black and white women and men. And what's interesting about the interviews is what they tell. You know, there are certain things they certain they, they will be more candid uh, with the black interviewers than they will with some of the white interviewers. But what's interesting about those WPA interviews is not only do we learn a lot about slavery, they also ask specific questions about emancipation and about the Ku Klux Klan. And so those records are full of information about what's happening in terms of Klan violence and what I call this larger war that's being waged on Black people's freedom. From your research about this period, how interested were the Northern leaders about what was going on with these raids? It depends on who they were. The white progressives in the North and West were very interested in this violence and bringing it up and bringing it to an end. The white conservatives in the North and West were more likely to identify with white conservatives in the South. They're all in the Democratic Party. And so they were more likely to downplay the violence, to say nothing is happening here, uh, or to believe um, white Southerners when they said, you know, there's no violence going on. They were, you know, happy to ignore even U.S. military personnel who are documenting the violence. And part of that is their own political calculation. They also want to move on from the Civil War. And they also um, object to Black people having rights beyond their release from bondage. Were any of the Southern whites who were involved in these raids ever prosecuted and sent to jail? So they were prosecuted. Some were prosecuted. It depends on where they were. In South Carolina, you do have the Ku Klux Klan trials. So you do have a federal intervention. Um, but what we know is that very few of the people who are tried and convicted actually do time. They're pardoned. They don't show up when they're supposed to to report to uh, so they can be incarcerated. Um, they disappear from communities. So very few of the people who participate in this violence are actually brought to justice in due time. How many of the night raiders, night riders were Ku Klux Klan members? And even beyond that, those that tortured the black folks in the South, how many of them belong to Ku Klux Klan? I guess a better way of asking, were there others that weren't in that organization that got involved? Yes, and and that's a really good question. I think, you know, one, there were a number of white terror groups in the South, the Knights of the White Camellia, et cetera. So it's not only the Klan. What you also have is white men who are invested in either attacking white men who were loyal to the United States or denying black people their rights and freedom. They don't have to be a member of an organization to mimic them to engage in the same kind of violence. 
in terms of the threats and the intimidation and the nighttime raids. And so it is not always clear, you know, it's not as though they're offering a membership card when they're attacking people. Uh, you know, so we look, you know, we don't often know who's formally a member of a clan and who's not, you know, because they keep their record secret. Um, and they're, you know, it's in their interest to boast and say, you know, look at how huge our organization is when these wouldn't necessarily be dues paying members. So we don't actually know. What we do know is that there are more, there are probably more white Southern men who are involved in this violence and denying black people their freedom than who were formal members of the Klan or other white terror groups. So this is part of a larger movement that includes not only people who are in organizations, but people who are out of organizations. Someone decides that they want to drive their neighbor off their land and they want to take it. They don't have to join a member. They don't have to join a group to do it. All they have to do is rally and, you know, target the family in the middle of the night and hold them hostage and they can get the same results. When you're out speaking, when you're in front of your class, uh, how often are you disappointed by how little people know about this whole story? I'm not disappointed at all because I know why they don't know. Right. You know, why they that? don't that, you know, they don't know because of the lost cause narrative. You know, the lost cause narrative not only includes the Civil War, it also includes Reconstruction. And that narrative for Reconstruction is that Reconstruction failed. And what they mean by failure is that black people, you know, they essentially say that black people gained, you know, black people had every opportunity in the world. They gained the rights and, the, you know, they gained rights and the vote and they failed to make the most of it. And so that is part of that sort of larger big lie of the lost cause narrative. That's actually not true. Um, but, you know, and the narrative of the lost cause, you know, for Reconstruction is that Black people failed to make the most of it. So white Southerners, uh, they had no choice but to rise up in the Ku Klux Klan uh, and, uh, re you know, redeem themselves, regain their honor by engaging in Klan violence and uh, installing Jim Crow. So that's a story that many have been taught um, and in some instances are still being taught today. Um, so that's the story that they believe. That's the story that they understand. And so the fact that you've got white Southerners who are deliberately denying black people access to freedom, that they are holding them hostage, trying to drive them off their property, um, is surprising to people. Um, it's shocking um, to a lot of people, but the historical records are there and they've been there all along, waiting for us to sort of fully acknowledge what happened. Which story that you researched made the biggest impression on you? I think the story of Hannah and Samuel Tutson uh, is one of the stories that resonated the most with me. And part of it is because one of the things that I did was to try to track survivors who testified at the hearings um, through the census to see how long I would be able to track the family over time. And given what happened to them, given how devastating um, their testimonies are about what happened to both of them in the raid and even to some of their children in the raid. You know, Hannah is experiencing what we would today uh, call post-traumatic uh, distress symptoms. Um, she still smells weeks after the attack, the alcohol that um, the deputy sheriff poured on her as he sexually assaulted her. So with this kind of harrowing violence, it's hard for a lot of families to stay together. You know, it's hard for a husband and wife to sort of live together with each other during uh, after having endured something like this. But what I found is, you know, in 1885, I find the couple together. They're no longer living where they were. They're living in another county, um, but they're still together. And to me, I think that's significant. I don't know how they were living. I don't know if it was a loving union, but that they were still together kind of gives me hope that they found something in each other, that they were able to live with themselves and each other after this violence. And so that's one of the stories that sticks out for me. We're about out of time, but I need to ask you the, the um, what's the word I want to use? <clears throat> Where did your first name, Kedada, come from? So my first name um, comes from actually Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones, his daughter, Kadada Jones, was born a few months before I was. And my dad said, my dad was a Quincy Jones fan, loved Quincy Jones. He said, if it's a girl, it's going to be Kadada. If it's a boy, it would have been Danny. So I feel like I lucked out. <laughs> do, do any, do, do people mispronounce it very often? 
People mispronounce it a lot, but it's uh, pronounced exactly the way it's spelled. People, they seem to go into uh, contortions, uh, adding uh, adding an extra I, etc. But uh, one of the things that um, my mom and my dad um, gave me uh, was a sense of confidence about correcting people to make sure that they say it right. The title of the book is I Saw Death Coming. As we said earlier, the subtitle is A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Our guest, Kadada E. Williams, professor at Wayne State University in Detroit. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.